Please turn with me to the book of Luke. Luke chapter 3. The sermon passage this morning comes from the book of Luke chapter 3. Following the reading of God's word, we will sing the Gloria Patri, which is printed for you in your bulletin. Please stand to hear God's holy word. Hear the word of the Lord. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod the Tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip Tetrarch of Iturea and Triconitus, and Licinius Tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the desert. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low, the crooked roads shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all mankind will see God's salvation." John said to the crowds coming to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. What should we do then, the crowd asked. John answered, the man with two tunics should share with him who has none, and the one who has food should do the same. The tax collectors also came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more money than you are required to, he told them. Then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? He replied, Don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. This is the word of God. Praise be to God. John the Baptist was a man's man. He had more guts than you could hang on a fence. He lived in the wilderness. He ate locusts and wild honey. He wore camel skin. After decades of seclusion... He appeared on the scene, spoke truth to power, literally had his head handed to him, and nearly 2,000 years later, we're still talking about him. If I had to summarize John the Baptist's life, it would go like this. He appeared in a moment of silence and darkness with a message of redemption, and he was a man of great bravery and humility. I want you to come to the moment in your life when the darkness is expelled. I want you to experience the assurance of the forgiveness of sins. I want you to become the man or the woman that you were created to be, a man of boldness in the face of opposition and a man or a woman of humility. That's who I want you to be. But if you're going to become that person, 
you need to know about John the Baptist. First, he came in a moment of darkness and silence. If you remember, Luke opens after 400 years of silence in the intertestamental period. There was no prophet in Israel. Yes, an angel appeared and announced the birth of John the Baptist and the birth of Jesus, but that was decades before. Here, we're introduced to a moment of darkness. We're told Caesar is on the throne, the Roman governor Pontius Pilate is underneath him, the regional princes, the tetrarchs are underneath them, the religious leaders, the high priests, Annas and Caiaphas, the ones with the political connections, the one who had influence, perhaps money and power in that day and age. The Herod that is mentioned here in this passage is not to be confused with Herod the Great. That was his father, Herod the Great, murdered the children in Bethlehem, the young males, two and younger, we're told in the book of Matthew. This was his son, Herod Antipas, who had John executed, who would be accused of conspiracy and exiled by the emperor Caligula. This was a time of great corruption, of violence, of darkness, people lusting for political power, doing anything they could to retain power. This is the moment in which the Word of God came. The lesson for you and I is that there is no darkness so dark that the Word of God cannot come and bring redemption and rescue. It was also a moment of anticipation. It might have been a moment which people would have cried out with Psalm 44, you have rejected us and disgraced us, O God. You've not gone out with our armies. You've made us turn back from the foe, and those who hate us have gotten spoil. You have made us like sheep for slaughter and have scattered us among the nations. You have sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. You've made us the taunt of our neighbors, the derision and scorn of those around us. You've made us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. Awake! Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? Rise up. Come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. The particular passage that we are directed to in the Old Testament that would have been known among the community was Isaiah chapter 40, which spoke of a voice calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. This was a chapter in which people were told that God's judgment would come upon them, that they would be going into exile as a result of their sins, and yet they were to take hope and comfort because God would come and rescue them from that darkness. There was a, a common, there was a common thing that was done not only in the days of Isaiah, but also in the days of John the Baptist, and it went like this, that when a king would come into a city, an ancient city, the city would gather together for a parade. They would fill in the potholes. They would clear off the road. They would clear everything from danger. They would make straight the paths. They would, as you would say, roll out the red carpet, make sure the town was completely in order. Then there would be a forerunner 
Someone with the authority of the king who would come before the king and herald him and say, Make way for the king! Make way for the king! Behold, the king is coming! John the Baptist was that forerunner who carried that authority. And the ace in the hole was that the king that would come was none other than Yahweh himself come in the flesh through the wilderness to save and rescue his people. It was a moment of great authority in which you might say there was a kind of mass revival. Look at verse 10. The crowds, the crowds full of all kinds of different people are asking, what should we do? Verse 12, the tax collectors, what should we do? They were the, the ones who were hated in their society. If there was anyone more hated, it might have been the soldiers in verse, verse 14. And what should we do? This was a moment in which everyone from all different walks of life was beginning to be gripped by the authority of God's Word. That is a sign that the moment has come in someone's life when they are about to go from darkness to light. When they begin to be gripped by the authority of God's Word and they ask, what must I do? That is a moment in which they are about to go from darkness to light. Have you ever had that moment in your life? Secondly, John not only came in a moment of darkness, he came with a message of rescue and redemption. The message went like this, there is no forgiveness of sin without repentance. Yes, the King is coming, the Messiah is coming, but there is no blessings in Him apart from repentance. His baptism, which he proclaimed, was a baptism that symbolized the cleansing needed in everyone's hearts. The turning that was needed from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God. We were called, we are called, as they were called, to bear fruit in keeping with that repentance. In other words, someone who's truly repented will begin to display a changed life. That was also the message of the Lord Jesus Christ himself, the message that he preached beginning in Matthew chapter 4, at the beginning of his ministry. Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Luke chapter 5, Jesus says to them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. That was the end of Jesus' ministry as well. He would say in Luke 24 to those who followed him on the road to Emmaus, this is what is written, the Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. Lest you think that repentance is some sort of Side note to preaching, some sort of background noise. Here's what Dick Gaffin, one of the foremost Pauline scholars of our day, wrote in The Fullness of Time. He said, The call to repentance and faith for the forgiveness of sins must always be present and prominent in preaching. To summarize John's message in a different way, it would go like this. 
There's no being in God's kingdom. There's no being in God's family. There's no being in, in a right relationship without repentance. If John the Baptist were here today, he'd be going onto the college campuses, into the philosophy departments, and saying, snakes. He'd be going perhaps to the synagogues and to the mosques, everywhere and anywhere where people are proclaiming that you can have a connection with God apart from repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Snakes! Perhaps he would be going to Hollywood and Wall Street, anywhere and everywhere where there's people influencing others with a destructive message and saying, Snakes! And don't tell me that you've got an end because your mom or your dad. Don't tell me we have Abraham as our father. Don't tell me because you've gone to a particular church or perhaps you know certain things, you've memorized certain things. None of that gives you an end. There is no forgiveness without repentance. What is repentance? What is repentance? The Westminster Larger Catechism puts it this way. Repentance unto life is a saving grace wrought in the heart of a sinner by the Spirit and the Word of God, whereby out of the sight and sense, not only of the danger, but also of the filthiness and odiousness of his sins, and upon the apprehension of God's mercy in Christ to such as are penitent, he so grieves and hates his sin that he turns from them all to God, purposing and endeavoring constantly to walk with him in all the ways of new obedience. There are some critical components of that definition. Let me tell you what they are first. Repentance is a grace. It's not a work that you can boast in. Yes, you are called to respond, but it is not something in which you can claim credit for among God or anyone else. That's the whole point of why you need to repent. There's no work that you can perform that would atone for your sins. Second, second, you have to have a true sense of the filthiness and the odiousness of your sins. It's not simply, though, I've been caught, oh, this has destroyed part of my relationships or some of my relationships. It's not, oh, I have to serve jail time now. Oh, this has really caused me a lot of personal agony. All of that may be true, and none of that is real repentance. It is an apprehension of the filthiness and odiousness of your sin, that you are grieving it because you've broken God's law. You've offended God. Therefore, you are guilty. Also, it is to have an apprehension of the grace of God in Christ. This is so critical. This is critical. There are a couple of wrong turns, a couple of false repentances that I want everyone to be aware of. First, one wrong turn in repentance would be to turn inward and say, oh, I'm such a bad person. I've lived such a terrible life. I'm wallowing in my, my guilt. I'm terrible. I hate myself. To bang your head against the wall, it's woe is me. It's all self-pity. It's all about you. It's all about how bad you are. 
And you never really get out of the self-focus. That's one wrong turn. It's a common wrong turn that people think that repentance means that you hate yourself all the time. Another wrong turn, not turning inward, but would be to turn sideways and say, I'm going to shape up. I'm going to do better. I'm going to do good works. I've been bad, and now I'm going to be good, and I'm okay because I'm shaping up. I'm doing better. These are the, maybe you'll even become a little bit more religious than you were before. That's another wrong turn. The right turn, as it says in the larger catechism, is that you turn from them all to God. In other words, you don't turn sideways or turn inward. You're turning away from yourself to God and saying, Oh, Father, forgive me for what I have done. And you have an apprehension of who Christ is and the mercy that is only offered to you there at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. That was the reason why the, the, the reformers so hated and protested against indulgences and against other things that were being told to people that you could buy off time in purgatory or you could contribute in these ways and your sins would be forgiven or, or sins of other people that you know would be forgiven. None of that is real repentance. It's called penance, and it has nothing to do with true repentance. That's why Luther's first thesis was that all of life is repentance. All of life is turning away from yourself unto God. Do you hate your sin? Do you grieve over your sin? Or are you just sad that you got caught doing something that you weren't supposed to be doing? Do you try to change your behavior without any real relationship with God? When you blow it, do you offer a shallow apology? That wasn't really my fault. You blame shift. I'm going to do better next time, I promise. Do you wallow in the self-pity? Are you overly introspective, always thinking about how bad you are? In your relationships, are you the chief repenter of the relationship? Or are you waiting for your wife or your husband to come repent to you? Have you repented? To God. Finally, I have to say something about John the Baptist, the man. He came in a moment of darkness. He came with a message of rescue. But this is the kind of man that he was. He was the kind of man who would charge the gates of hell with an ice bucket. Here's what Charles Spurgeon said. We see in him an Elijah a man of iron, a son of thunder, he roared like a young lion on his prey and feared the face of none. Some men are so naturally meek-spirited, not to say weak-minded, that they naturally become subservient and set up others as their leaders. Such men are apt to err in depreciating themselves. But John was every inch a man. His great soul bowed only before that which was worthy of homage. He was in God's strength as an iron pillar and a bronze wall. He was a hero for the cause of the Lord, and yet he sat down in the presence of Jesus as a little child sits on a stool at his master's feet, and he cried, whose sandal strap I'm not worthy to stoop down and to loose. John lived hard. His meat was locust and wild honey. His dress was not the soft raiment of men who lived in palaces. He wrapped about him the rough camel's skin, and as he lived hard, he died hard too. 
His boldness brought him into a dungeon. His courageous fidelity earned him a martyr's death. Here was a man who lived in self-denial and died witnessing for the truth of God and righteousness, and all this because he had a high esteem of his master. That's the testimony of John the Baptist. He teaches us what it is to be a man, a real man will bow before the Lord Jesus Christ. Real men repent of sin from the heart. That's what real men do. Real men do not seek glory for themselves, but they say, I must decrease, he must increase. Real men embrace public disgrace for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what real men do. Real men speak truth to power, regardless of the personal cost. But that's not all that real men do. Real men also are humble when they need to be humble. John was known for the saying, I'm not worthy to untie the sandal of the Lord Jesus Christ. Untying the sandal was the lowest work of the lowest servant. It was a smelly, grubby, dirty, Horrible job that no one wanted to do in the ancient world. But he, he considered himself not even worthy to stoop that low. He would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. Real men stoop down to serve. That's what real men do. In other words, there should be no form of service to Christ that is too low for you. Men, let me ask you some questions. The security, too low for you? Serving in the nursery, cleaning up, food preparation, those tasks too low for you? Changing light bulbs, thermostats, pencil, sharpening pencils, gathering communion cups, anything and everything, are those jobs too low for you? Are those tasks too worthy? The small things that are done for Christ, things that the deacons don't see, that the elders don't see, that the pastors don't see, those are the things that bring God honor and glory. In your relationship with your wives, do you treat her as someone whose sandals you're not worthy to soup down and untie? Is that the way you treat your wife? Are there tasks in the home in which you think you're too high for, you're too good for? The laundry, the dishes, the diapers, are those tasks too low for you? Real men stoop down to serve. That's what they do. John the Baptist would have charged the gates of hell with an ice bucket, but he didn't have to because there was someone who charged the gates of hell for him. There was someone who went lower than John the Baptist in his service. Someone who endured even worse than the beheading that John the Baptist got. Someone who was bruised and marred and crucified. Who went through a moment of darkness like no other because he had the wrath of God poured on him. 
There is someone who was treated as the rebellious son, even though he was a perfectly obedient son, in order that when you repent, you could know that you've been forgiven. There is someone here, present in the preaching of God's Word, present on the pages of Scripture, a man who you need in order to become the man you want to be. Have you repented of your sins and put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Who came, he came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. That's who, and what, that's who he was. There is no moment in life that is too dark that Christ cannot come in and expel the darkness. Have you reached that moment in your life when you have turned to God and asked, what must I do to be saved? And put your trust in the Lord Jesus. Have you turned to God? Are you still wallowing in self-pity? Are you trying to shape up by your good deeds and good behavior and you think you're a pretty good guy before God? You don't really need to bow before Him? Is that who you think you are? Christ died to forgive you, not someone else. Christ died in order that you would repent. He wants you to be the man that He created you to be, bold in the face of opposition, bold when you're called to be bold, and yes, humble when you need to be humble. But there is no such thing as becoming the person you were created to be without cleansing of the Lord Jesus Christ, without his spirit working in you to make all things new. So I proclaim to you this day as a herald of the Lord Jesus Christ, repent, bow the knee before the Lord Jesus Christ. The axe is laid to the root of the trees. His winnowing fork is in your hand. Bow the knee. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Almighty God, we confess before you that we often believe we have no need to repent. We often take any and every wrong turn that we can instead of coming to you. Bring us out of our self-focus, of our self-absorption. Bring us out of trying to shape up in all the wrong ways, thinking that we can get our act together apart from you, apart from a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us, Lord, by your word, through your spirit, to repent from the heart, to turn from ourselves to you, to cultivate a relationship with you through the Lord Jesus Christ. May we be men and women who do not cower under the intimidation of the world, but speak boldly truth to power when we need to, and yet also bow humbly before you. Help us know the difference between the two. May we be bold when we need to be, and may we be humble when we need to be, and help us know when to do either one. Create in us a clean heart and prepare the way, Lord, in our heart that the Lord Jesus Christ would come and sit on his glorious throne in our heart and rule with righteousness. We pray this all in his name. Amen.